please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Please read with me the verses in bold. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command the angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Brad's and, and everyone else you saw up here on the, on the, uh, the stage. Uh, my name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Uh, thankful for for all of you and for, for joining us this morning, and thankful that you uh, can be here to worship with us. Um, the great playwright Oscar Wilde once jokingly remarked, I can resist everything except temptation. You know, it's difficult not to smile or laugh at such a statement as we all know how difficult temptation is to resist. Temptation is something we all face and we all struggle with. For each person, that temptation might be different. But no one is exempt from temptation. Temptation is everywhere. Everyone is tempted to sin almost daily, if not hourly. You see, temptation says something about the condition of the human heart. Lyrics from the great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, describe our human condition well. As Robinson writes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If history tells us anything, the plight of man is to wander, to stray, to disobey. Temptation is not new. It's a pattern that we've seen uh, repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. God would deliver Israel, command them to follow him wholeheartedly, and then they would wander and sin again. It doesn't just happen once or twice, but the cycle repeats itself over and over again. There are countless stories of temptations in the Old and New Testaments. However, all the temptations found in Scripture, 
there are two particular places, I think, where temptation of an individual is put on display for us to see. And these two, as they have eternal ramifications. We are, as Brad mentioned, uh, and Steve so uh, beautifully has, uh, has provided art for our sermon series. We're calling our sermon series uh, That You May Know, and we are in the fifth week of this particular sermon series in the book of Luke. Again, uh, the intention of the gospel writer, uh, the intention of Luke, he says, is that we may know, that we might come to know who Jesus is. So he goes to great detail and tells over the first three chapters, again, describing who Jesus is, tells us uh, more than any other gospel writer, the birth of Jesus, the boyhood of Jesus, and even there's a, a time marker in the book of Luke that you find nowhere else in the other gospels. It says that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So there's a lot. But I would argue that, again, the three sections, again, two that we've looked at previously and the one we're looking at today are all interconnected. Actually, the whole book of Luke is intricately connected. Again, when you read through the book of Luke, if you ever get a chance to, kind of read it from the beginning to the end, kind of read those 24 chapters of the book of Luke, it is actually by far the longest of the, of the Gospels. But if you ever get a chance to read through it, you might think that these are kind of standalone stories. It seems like these are all different parts of stories of the life of Jesus, but Luke is careful to put these in order, and he has a purpose in mind when we read them. The last three sections, as I mentioned, are all interconnected. Chapters 3 and 4 are beautifully woven together. There is the genealogy of Jesus. I made Mary Wagner Davis read through 77, uh, difficult to pronounce names. The week before that, Brad preached on John the Baptist and the story of, uh, of him being baptized, uh, baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And then this morning, we're looking at the temptation of Jesus. And again, these are all very carefully and intricately woven together. Everything up to this point has been by way of introduction. The first three chapters to give us a sort of prologue, an introduction to the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. And at this point, no ministry has taken place, just preparation, a baptism, and a genealogy. And again, these are, again, I mentioned, these are all placed side by side by side of each other, giving us a clue as to the author's intent. What is Luke trying to tell us? I'll give you a clue. I mentioned it last week as we took a close look at the genealogy. These three sections or stories, the baptism, the genealogy, and the temptation are all there to have us draw comparisons between the first Adam and the second Adam. Let's look at it together. Looking at verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. He repeats that in the wilderness. And 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. You see, Luke makes it a point to compare and to contrast 
the two Adams. This is a constant theme. This is actually a very important theme that sets up the rest of the book. But Jesus makes it a point to compare the first Adam and the second Adam. And just so, again, we talked about last week, the genealogy ends with uh, Adam, the son of God, right? It begins with Jesus. It makes its way through Abraham, I'm sorry, through David and through Abraham all the way to Adam. No other gospel writer does that. There's no other genealogy that begins that way or ends that way. We talked about Matthew's genealogy, how it starts with Abraham and it ends with Jesus. But again, these are a comparison of two Adams. We say that there's the initial Adam or the first Adam. We say that there's the Adam who was the first person to ever live, the one who God breathed into his nostrils and, he, and there was life. This Adam of the Old Testament, we said, we use this fancy word, uh, it talks about him as the federal head of the human race, how he represents us, how in his sin all sinned. Again, this first Adam was supposed to be that perfect example of someone who followed God perfectly, the one who obeyed God's word, who did everything God said who had communion and relationship with God in the garden, in the cool of the garden, and enjoyed that sweet, sweet communion with God. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, that's not the case. As I mentioned, the point of these narratives, and particularly of the one we find here of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, is to draw a comparison. John Milton, you may know him, the famous English poet who wrote the Great literary work, Paradise Lost, features these two great temptations. It tells the biblical story of Adam and Eve. When they were tempted by Satan in the Garden of Eden, it's the story of the first man and the first woman and their disobedience to God and its consequences, particularly Paradise Lost, because of what they did. It's a comparison of the temptation of Adam in the Old Testament and the book of Genesis and this one of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The first is that which was given to our earthly parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. The second one is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, who was driven to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan himself. I know it sounds like a uh, lecture. I, I apologize. But again, as I read through this, it's so fascinating. You know, there are these comparisons. You know, when you, when you read through it and you read through the, the lens of that first Adam and the second Adam, there's all these comparisons that come to mind. Again, everyone who read this book, they knew it. They drew those comparisons. Well, there's the first Adam who, who, who was uh, given the, the, the paradise that, that God had created for him in the Garden of Eden. There are these strong contrasts between Adam and Eve, temptation and the temptation of Jesus. Again, the, the, the setting, for example, the setting for the test of Adam and Eve was this glorious garden of, I want to say Maui. Um, I, I feel like it should be there. They had their choice to eat freely. And yet Jesus, on the other hand, is fasting and is hungry for 40 days in the wilderness. And it's certainly not the garden of Eden. There's the comparison of the world before the fall and after the fall. Adam was tempted in a perfect world where no thorns or bristles or, uh, or briars or pain or death existed. Everything was perfect, and yet 
Jesus was tempted in the fallen and broken world. Or you think about who was with him, who was with Adam in the, the first temptation. God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. So he makes a suitable helper for him, a companion who would be with him. And yet we know the story of the temptation in the wilderness. And Jesus, he went to a solitary place. He went to the wilderness to be by himself, to commune with God. He was alone. The book of Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve were tempted once. We know that in the book of Luke, chapter 4, we know that Satan tempts Jesus three times. Adam, at this point, is probably full. Jesus is hungry. I mean, think about the words that are used, the, 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 the scripture that's used between the, the two contexts. Satan twists the word of God and says to Eve, did God really say? Where Jesus says, it is written. So we come to Luke chapter 4, verse 3, where the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, and again, I'm going to go through this fairly quickly, but he says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The temptation, I think, again, different scholars will tell you different things, but I, I think as I read through this, the temptation is the same. In all three accounts, the temptation is the same, not different. Again, because, um, again, these are the same, I will just expound on the very first one. Uh, but the question is, uh, Satan asking Jesus, if you are the son. It's fascinating, as I said, because again, if you do an academic study, and I don't, not, not everyone likes that inductive Bible study, but when you get into the text, there are some fascinating ties, again, to the baptism where, again, Jesus is being baptized by John in the Jordan, and uh, the heavens open up, and, and God from heaven says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So these comparisons between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, and again, there's this temptation by, by Satan himself and says to Jesus, if you are the son of God. And as I wrap my head around these, this academic study of uh, Luke chapter 4, I have come to this realization that, again, Satan is not asking Jesus, are you the son of God? To me, as I wrestle with this, there doesn't make a lot of sense that he would be asking the question. Certainly, I think Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. Satan knows exactly what Jesus can do. For you see, in all three instances, he asks Jesus to do something. He tells him to turn stone into bread. We find Jesus later on in John chapter 6 where he takes loaves of bread and he makes more bread. Right, again, Satan knew who Jesus was and he knew what he was capable of. And, and certainly Satan knew that Jesus was and is and will forever be the son of God. So when you read through this section, it's not a question of if he is, but perhaps we can translate this since he is. 
Since you are the Son of God, tell the bread to become, or tell the stone to become bread, and it will become bread for you. Yes, Jesus had the power to do it. And was it a sin? Perhaps if Jesus were to turn bread into, I'm sorry, stone into bread, a rock into uh, something edible? Man, if you have the power to do it, why not? Right? I mean, you have the power to, to convert things, right? I mean, it's not possible, I think, in our day. I mean, we can't think of it that way. But again, when we think about what Jesus can do, it's certainly it's not a sin that Jesus can turn a rock, a stone, pebbles into, into edible morsels for him to eat. What was Satan doing? Satan, I think, was attacking Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, again, in, in a sense that, uh, that he was making Jesus doubt in the promises and the faithfulness of God. I think when you think about it, again, here he's saying, since you are the Son of God, since you can do these things, since you can do miraculous things, and you can turn rocks into bread, do it. Since you are. And Jesus answers that by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8 and says, well, man shall not live by bread alone. And again, the answer seems to fit the, the argument here that Jesus is saying, no, I will not doubt that God will provide. And when you read the Old Testament, right, there's these stories of the Old Testament where, again, there's this this comparison between the old and new where there's this, this number 40, right? So there's the wandering of the Israelites around the desert for 40 years. And this comparison that Jesus will be in the desert as well in the wilderness for 40 days. And there's these comparisons between the old and the new. And again, for the people of Israel, it was God saying over and over again, I will provide for you. I will give you what you need. I will give you every day. And when you think about it, right? I mean, when you think about the Old Testament uh, journey of the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years, 40 years, God provided for them every single day. I did the math and I cannot remember what I, what I did, but 144,000 days, something like that where God would provide for the needs of Israel, that he would let manna fall from the sky, that he would provide quail for them when they wanted meat, that they would tap a rock and water would come gushing out, that God would provide for them every step of the way, that wherever they went, that when it was hot, there was a, a pillar of cloud by day, and then when they were cold, there was a pillar of fire by night. And again, the lesson for Israel was that God will and would always provide for his people. The God that we believe, the God that we know is a God who is faithful. The God that we know and believe is a God who loves and cares for his own. So what makes you think, what makes us think that in this situation, that God won't provide for Jesus, the one he calls his beloved son? And that is the test to to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt the promises of God, to doubt the provisions of God, to doubt that God has, or to, to say that God has abandoned us, or to say that, that God has forgotten about us. 
I mean, why do you think we sing the songs, we say, uh, uh, we ple- you know, God, remember your people, remember your promises? Because the Israelites, they, they thought that God had forgotten them, that God had abandoned them. Maybe it has to do with God's provision and protection over Israel. And again, this is uh, Satan's way of saying to Jesus, serve yourself. Show off your divine power. Take care of your physical needs. But did you know when you read through the commandments or when you read through the stories of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels particularly, there's not one thing he does to serve himself. Many, many years ago, uh, we were at a retreat and our guest preacher uh, for our youth retreat at my former church uh, asked the question, if you could have any superpower, what would you ask for? And he had kids raise their hands and said, I wish I can fly, you know, I wish I had superpower strength and, you know, and all sorts of good, wonderful gifts, right? And uh, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know what I would want. I, I just, I have no idea. But there was one kid, and he was the last kid to answer, but he said, I, would, I wish I had the power to help people. You know, a lot of times we think about the things that God's gifted us with. You know, we think about uh, those supernatural powers that we think we should have. And, you know, we're thinking about self-serving those needs that we have. But Jesus never did that. Every opportunity to show that he was God, he did it for the sake of others. Where Satan says, serve me. Jesus did quite the opposite. He served the least of these. Jesus had the power to do it. Yes. But he said, I will not doubt God's promises. The setting for this conflict between Satan and Jesus is significant. Again, Jesus and Satan square off in the wilderness. And it takes us back to to that place where the Israelites wandered for 40 years. And just as Israel was tested in the wilderness... Jesus, too, will be tested. For Jesus quotes, for man shall not live by bread alone. He sticks on God's faithfulness and delivering his promises and his protection. You see, the old covenant was marred by human unfaithfulness, and the new covenant would be based on the faithfulness of God's Son. And what we read through this, again, is there's this comparison between Israel and and Jesus, between the first Adam and the second Adam, and it's that Jesus will fulfill those perfectly. He will obey the law perfectly. He will obey the law obediently. And the Bible tells us, and again, Luke makes it a point to compare and contrast these two Adams. So why a temptation, right? Why a temptation? Secondly, I think Jesus had to go through the temptation in order to be the perfect sacrifice. If you think about it, Jesus had to go through the temptations to understand the seriousness of these 40 days. days, You have to understand the basic truth that God's plan of salvation required a perfect mediator. One who would be tempted in every way. The one who Luke portrays for us this perfect man, this one who had a genealogy, had this genealogy that led all the way back 
through David, through Abraham, and to Adam, that this perfect man and this perfect God, the Son of God, the requirements of the Savior, a perfect mediator, tempted in every way, and yet without The Savior would take the curse, the death penalty upon himself to make it possible for us to be saved from eternal death and to live forever. This perfect candidate, the one who who fulfilled all the requirements of a perfect Savior and mediator, had to be Jesus who was tempted just like Adam and succeed. Where the first one failed, Jesus came and obeyed perfectly. He lived a perfect, sinless life in human flesh. He took on our curse that we would not have to. Thirdly, he must succeed where Adam failed. Again, Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is our great example. He's our model. He's our teacher when it comes to resisting temptation. He was tempted in all things just as we are and yet without sin, the Hebrew writer tells us. But here's the thing. Jesus is not just our model. Jesus is not just our example. He's our substitute. It's great to have a great model. Great to have a great example. But Jesus knew our tendency. And he knows our tendency to prone uh, to wander. And Jesus knowing our human condition, and Jesus knowing that our, our first father, our, the first Adam, will be prone to wander and disobey God. Jesus knowing this, became our substitute. Because he knew that no matter how hard we try, and, I'm, and I will tell you, to, and I will be the first one to tell you, I've heard plenty of sermons that say, resist temptation by doing this, this, and this. And I will tell you that that theology is so difficult. You know, that way of living is so hard because, you know, I, and, and I will say I've been in those shoes where you try and you try and you try and then you fail and then you fail and you fail. And yes, Jesus is our great substitute. He is our model, yes, but he is our great substitute. And Jesus, knowing this and knowing that we couldn't do it, he gives us himself, the second Adam, the last Adam, the better Adam, That through him we might find life. And I mentioned last week the imputation of of Christ's righteousness to us. And my friends, that is the hope that we have. That is the good news that we hold to. Is that when we cannot try any harder. Or we cannot try and try and try not to do it. Or we try and just say No. We have failed. And that's why we need someone who has prevailed. 